Welcome to Voices in Physics, a podcast that explores the culture in physics through interviews with people in the field. So thank you for sitting down with me. I really appreciate your, this discussion about um, how your experiences in physics and, and your perspectives on what the culture is like. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, um, I'm a graduate student at a private university. And uh, you went to undergrad and at what sort of institution? Also a private university, a small liberal arts college. And <clears throat> what got you into physics to begin with? Um, well, I guess I had like a lot of interest in just generic science-y things growing up, kind of through elementary and middle school. I had this idea of physics as sort of like a... Uh, you, know, you get those catalogs that have all like the weird electro gizmos that make like cool uh, electricity lines, lava lamps and stuff. And I just thought that like being a physicist meant like you had a room of those or something. And it was pretty cool sounding. But did then by that, uh, did that uh, play out for you in real life? Unfortunately, not. Uh, I'm a theorist <laughs> now, so I don't really get many gizmos. But oh, sorry to hear. Uh, eventually, in High school, I mean, I, I, just, I read all the time, and I eventually stumbled on, because it was cheap in some used bookstore, uh, Feynman's QED, a very, like, qualitative review of um, quantum field theory ideas and diagrams, which is just very interesting. Um, and that kind of got me on the path to, to wanting to do theory of some sort. So, yeah, like, in high school, probably, I was pretty set on wanting to do physics. And did you have any role models? Did you have any idea what physics was or looked like or STEM in general? Um, not particularly. My dad does like uh, computer things, not like computer science, more like he programs. Um, I guess I had teachers in high school, um, but they, I mean, it's hard to know in high school, but in hindsight, like what they do is very different from what like a practicing like scientist does. Um, but they, I guess, helped me. And what about in, in pop culture? Did you have figures in TV shows, movies, books, uh, any any of those kind of things? I don't know. Uh, I guess I always like sort of like hacky, like you know, like hacker things. Um, have you seen Live Free or Die Hard? There's the Mac guy in it. He's like a computer hacker. It's like a terrible movie, but it's fun. And, you know, I guess I also got into a lot of computer stuff. I do a lot of simulations now, so that panned out, I suppose. Interesting. <laughs> uh, at what point did you realize that physics was a thing that you wanted to do, not computer science, for example? Um, I would say probably about the middle of high school when I hadn't really learned to code and I found it really boring. <laughs> like actual programming for like programming's sake. Um, and I found cool books on physics like right. QED and the like and that's just sort of captured my imagination I guess. And were you aware of the gender gap when you became interested in physics or when you started actually practicing or studying it more seriously? Only implicitly, I would say. I didn't really, like, it wasn't a conscious thing in my mind until later on when I started talking to people who 
like are concerned about that kind of thing and have gotten to different movements around that sort of thing. Um, it was kind of difficult to see when I came to college, for instance, because um, though my college was a small liberal arts college, a lot of science and math types there, um, they did a very uh, cool thing with their admissions where they somehow engineered a class that had slightly more women than men when I entered. Um, but then several years in, when people were selling their majors, the physics cohort <laughs> did not reflect that ratio. Um, the, the like gender imbalance kind of moved towards things like computer science, um, or the in the in favor of women moved towards computer science, and physics ended up having about the ratio it always does, which was you know five to one. So, how many women were in your physics cohort? Um, well, let's see. There were probably roughly. 30 people in the cohort, and five to one would mean six, which sounds about right. So when did you become more aware of what it means to have a gender gap, or when did you become more aware of how women's experiences might differ from, from men's? I don't know if I could put my finger on a specific point, uh -huh. but I mean, there's a, like, just talking to people, first off. Um, you know, was this like undergrad or was this grad? Um, definitely throughout undergrad, I would say maybe like my my consciousness of the issue might have matured a bit in grad school, but like throughout undergrad, talking to people, taking even just taking courses by people not in physics who would teach things about you know uh, gender studies or uh, you know imperialism, uh, a lot of a lot of the history you learn that has nothing to do with the sciences, you can kind of see reflected in a lot of the culture that exists in the sciences, because all these things you know, have continuity and are connected. Um, and so I guess, I think definitely I had a lot of consciousness building in, you know, more generic, uh, you know, marginal studies. And then uh, with those kind of lenses in mind, looked at physics and was like, oh wow, it's, it's all here too. <laughs> And so in the next part of this interview, I ask you for specific incidents where you felt particularly discouraged. And a question I like to ask people is, uh, did you feel discouraged for reasons that had nothing to do with the quality of your work or your abilities? I what, can't, okay, yeah. Or were there ever moments where you, you weren't sure if mm. you were being treated based solely on the quality of your work? Yeah, I don't have anything related to like my identity. For those listening, I'm a white man, but um, I guess I definitely have had like stressful problems with some of the like research culture in physics. Um, for a time, I worked with someone in hard condensed matter physics, which I I don't work in that field anymore. And I don't know if it was the specific PI, I don't really think it was, but it was just the, the culture in those fields right now is, is very fast-paced and competitive because things are moving quickly. And I guess there's a lot of money, superconductors, important, I suppose. Um, and there was just a lot of pressure to, to not just like do research, but do research and not be stooped. Like, 
have some idea and spend no time kind of exploring the size, just <laughs> we've got to get to that publication, we've got to get it on the archive or else um, someone else do it first because everyone's doing this right now. Um, and that was very discouraging, I would say. I spent a summer with this professor and by the end I was like, wow, I don't want to be a research scientist anymore. Um, Wait, can you, can you explain? So, was this an undergraduate summer experience? This was a graduate summer okay. experience. And you left the lab feeling like, wow, I don't want to do physics anymore. Well, not physics. I mean, I was always sort of on the fence about being a research scientist. Okay. Um, but I do really love to teach. Um, and, like, I, I, I suppose it, it, it solidified a sense I already had that whatever position I take after professorship, for instance, I would want to be something that's teaching focused and not at like an R1, for instance. You said it solidified that in your mind, but do you think if you'd had a very, if instead you'd had a very positive experience that summer, would you still be on the fence about being a research scientist versus teaching? Like, was it this one experience that really finalized that for you? Um. Perhaps. I don't know. Um, I definitely, I mean, like, I had the sense that I preferred teaching. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I could say whether it'd be as sure about it now. Okay. Uh, I'm just curious about how impactful that experience was on your career track. Hmm. Um. Somewhat impactful, I would say. Okay. Did you talk to anyone about the problem that you had were this bizarre culture of driving for results. Like, it's a very stressful experience. Did you talk to anyone about it? I mean, I've talked to my peers about it, but I haven't, I hadn't talked, brought it up with anyone in the department. And what did your peers say? What was the, what was their reaction? And um, did it help? Did it I guess it depended on the person. If I talk to people who are, like, for instance, in my current group, which tends to pick up somewhat old problems that don't have a lot of attention, they'll be like, oh yeah. That's why hard units matter physics is stressful. <laughs> um, and you talk to people who, who do that kind of thing, they go, yeah, it's true. It is stressful, but this is what I like. Okay. And do you have other incidents in your graduate, undergrad, even high school, RU programs, this kind of thing? Mm. Or even the converse. Were there moments where you felt incredibly encouraged? And what did that look like? Yeah. Um, in, as an undergrad, I, I started a project with someone who became my um, thesis advisor that just, I guess, through some amount of luck at having picked up the right project and like the time I had to work on it over summer, like bore out to be a really cool thing. And um, like, the department celebrated when I graduated. And that was very nice. Like, it really was like, oh, wow, like, you can do something with research and like, find something new. Um, so that was very encouraging. So do you have any other incidents that you'd like to talk about? Um, Discouragement. So yeah, not related to research, but um, I have been involved with a lot of labor things on campus related to graduate student work. And um, I mean, like, in my own teaching, I mostly TA because, uh, as I mentioned, our field isn't very exciting, and so uh, there's not as much funding as hard and as benefits might have. And 
I mean, as a, in our department, TAs are very well compensated, um, and the jobs are always very fun, but there's very, this very weird culture of lax labor standards. Like, what is expected of you is kind of kept sort of fuzzy, and that kind of lets, uh, like, maybe not explicitly, but it lets whoever's managing you kind of push you for more time than you maybe should. And uh, in response to some, some labor stuff at the graduate school, it imposed like some, some explicit time limits on what these assistantships should have. And I, I kept finding myself, uh, uh, while in my teaching jobs, just like consistently being asked to perform over the weekly averages we're supposed to have, over the max, maximum cap in hours we were supposed to have. So I emailed one of, like there's this kind of ask a dean line I emailed and said, like, hey, if this is happening to me, like, what's the, like, what should I do? Like, who should I talk to, basically, was my question. Um, and instead of telling me, the teens forwarded my message, uh, name and all, to both the, the DGS for the department, the Director of Graduate Studies, and the person who was managing my course. <laughs> and was just said, hey, we got a complaint about your hours. <laughs> And so the first response I got was from the DGS saying, oh, would you talk to me? Like, we'll figure this out. <laughs> and uh, only afterwards that I get a response from the dean that was like, you should talk to your DGS when this happens. So that was fairly discouraging. I think there had, are... Had you already talked to the director of graduate studies? No. From all, for, for what they saw, I had just gone over their heads. <laughs> When really what I wanted to know was like, when this happens, what, sh like, what are graduate students in general supposed to do? Um, so there's definitely this culture of like, I mean, th there existed for a long time this culture of like, you know, graduate school work asks as much as it needs from you. And like you have some kind of autonomy in your life and that's sort of the trade-off. And it's, it's a good thing that lately we've been pushing on that. It, it asks as much as it needs you to, and you can, we can try to set some standards for like, look, we're getting compensated for something we're doing. Uh, there should be some sort of you know, floor to uh, those rates based on how much we have to work. But when you try to you know, enforce those things, say, look, this is on the paper. Uh, we should actually be doing this. Uh, you know. It's not always received very well. And so, what happened after you after you talked to the dean of the or sorry the uh, director of graduate studies? Presumably, you talked afterwards. Yeah, we talked, um, and I talked to the person the person leading the course too, um, and they you know removed some uh, of the commitments that I had. Like they they just said, look, don't do study hall. Uh, we'll get someone else to do that, and in the Subsequent years, actually, they've removed uh, like grading from those courses, for instance. They hire an external grader, and TAs don't have to do that anymore. So positive change has happened as a result of raising these hackles, but it always takes that. And definitely because of the fact that like, I was not the one who was able to bring the complaints, the deans kind of just sent it down without my permission, um, the professor in question is now somewhat cold to me. <laughs> Is that the professor is the course manager or professor? The course manager, yeah. Okay. And how's your relationship with the director of graduate studies? Um, fine, I suppose. He's the person who was director of graduate studies is no longer. Uh, so 
that isn't really affecting me anymore. So when they removed workload from you, did they do that to everyone? Because I assume that you weren't the only person who was receiving extra extra work. Yeah, so on that specific course, like we had, a, you know, there was teaching sections, grading, holding office hours, like staff meetings, and then also there was this study hall that was run by some undergraduate TAs. We were also expected to go help with, and they just kind of, you know, cut that, and they told us we should only grade one problem on the homeworks, <laughs> and, you know, did some other small little adjustments and got us under 15 hours consistently. <laughs> Glad to hear that. Yes. I'm glad to hear that that worked out, even though it has created some tension. Uh, have they put in place a reporting procedure that is anonymous and clear to everyone? Do you, if now you had a problem, would you know what to do? I mean, I would know what to do. It is not anonymous or clear to everyone. The procedure that the graduate school wants people to do is go to their DGS. Um, that's it. That's the, that's the procedure in place. I suppose, like, the ombudsman exists, but I think that they are a powerless feature of the university that's mostly there as, like, an FAQ. Um, I don't believe there's any other place to go, I guess, besides, you know, if, you, if your DGS just flatly refuses, I suppose the next level is to escalate to a dean, but that's, again, like, you're putting yourself out there to do any of this. And it seems to be an appropriate time to ask, uh, are you, have you ever been concerned about retaliation? And what would that look like? And how did it affect how you maneuvered? Mm -hmm. Well, I wasn't until these things started happening related to uh, what happened when I tried to ask about better labor practices. But I guess definitely now I'm more careful about the emails I sent and the questions I asked to administrators in terms of I guess I don't I don't feel like I have a lot to be afraid of in terms of like official things they would do I feel like have been in the consciousness of for instance the graduate school deans um, with respect to like fighting for better labor practices mostly means they just want me out of here faster. Um, there's some, there's like, there's a sense that anything, any sort of retaliation a graduate school did to, a gra to graduate employees who were doing labor activism would be so bad looking <laughs> that there's like almost a protection there. Um, I don't know of any cases of, of graduate schools um, reacting to graduate students by uh, kind of marginalizing or firing. Um, I get, again, mostly because I think they hope that you'll just leave and it makes these movements very hard because people are constantly cycling out. Um, but I suppose in looking forward, uh, just our neighboring school fired several uh, uh, adjunct professors who were attempting to organize uh, unions there and were ruled against by the National Labor Relations Board because of that. So I think those sort of informal like uh, publicity protections that means that graduate student organizers are mostly immune from sort of 
like job-based retribution um, does not extend to the next levels of, of careers, I think. Especially these kind of adjunct and contingent faculty who are basically just treated like graduate students but sla have a new label slapped on them, um, have much, much less job security than even graduate students. Are there other forms of retaliation that you hear or what have? I guess mostly like right now I am afraid of just like having people who, for instance, like deans or you know department directors who don't like the types of questions or, or movements that are being raised, uh, like take kind of subtle steps to maybe uh, close certain like resource doors in the department. I don't think that people have done that to me and I like don't, I, I just think they wouldn't because I'm kind of loud and again I'm a white man who mostly can kind of you know be very loud about these things and uh, expect that like most people um, who could have some like have naturally sympathy for me will will listen when I say look the department's doing such and such and yeah, so I guess I I, in, I I haven't had those concerns so directly. I, de I, I definitely know other people, though, who uh, yeah, have you, been more concerned about that. Can you talk about what types of resources would be closed to graduate students? Well, I mean, our department does all kinds of uh, travel award type things. I think I, I mentioned that because it's the first thing in my head. I think probably the most principal thing is, is, is the way that TA ships work. Like, TA ships are sort of this black box where you write down several preferences and then a complicated department machinery moves and you have an assignment at the end. Um, there's not a system and it's, it, any system that does exist is completely opaque. And so a very plausible retaliation, especially for people who rely on TA ships for their, their wages, uh, is that like you're either marginalized to classes you don't like or are less desirable, or like for for whatever unknown reason <laughs> they're just out or something. Um, definitely, especially in the summers, there are only a, a very small selection of T-ships that exist, and some are much worse than others. More only, for instance, half summers and you only get paid for the time that you actually teach, so um, it's quite a hit if you don't get a full T-ship for the summer. Um, I imagine that if, if like people who rely on those things would be very plausibly concerned about um, the department subtly retaliating by the way they assign TA ships, but you know there are other things departments the department does. Um, that, like there's different other routes of funding. There's like uh, committee formation. You know all kinds of other like administrative hurdles that if people decide want to make hard for you, they can make hard for you. Do you know of anyone who's experienced this kind of hardships as a result of? I don't know. Okay. I'm just uh, thinking of concerns. I think our department has been pretty good about uh, being like administratively agnostic to uh, labor organizing or speaking up about uh, like uh, marginalization. They've been so pretty receptive, I think, um, which is good. It's good to hear. But the the problem with this. With, with the graduate school system in this regard is that it basically, for the most part, at least at my institution, is the department's prerogative. Like, there, 
there aren't these structures in place. If you get a good department, it can be very good because they're very flexible. They can decide how they do different practices basically on their own whim. And so if you have a receptive you know, chair or director of graduate studies, you can get things changed. And like, I've gotten things changed in this way. But like, I know people in other departments that aren't physics where that's just not true. And the same flexibility that lets like, a physics department just change their policy on a whim also lets other departments just have bad policies that they don't care about changing and presumably could you know, do things like this if you attempt to rock the boat. I see. So you don't see any outside authority necessarily that if these things went wrong could step in and say, hey, don't do that. Yeah, like there are black. A lot of these policies and practices are just black boxes, and if the administrators administrators in those black boxes are sympathetic, then they can you know run them in a way that helps you. But if they're not, then it, you have nothing. You have no you have no recourse essentially. Yeah. Okay. Do you have any other things you want to talk about? And uh, I just want to. I'm curious. In your grad cohort, what was the gender ratio for women versus men? Um, about six or seven to one. Okay. Men's women. Yeah, How yeah. How many grad students were incoming? Roughly 30. Okay. So it would have been like six or seven women? Yeah, yeah. They were like five. And have they all stayed on? You're now pretty far into your grad studies. For the most part. I, d I mean, you definitely... I don't think any of the women who entered my cohort have left, but definitely I see in the surrounding cohorts, women tend to take leaves of absence much more often than men. And at my institution, taking leave of absence often means just dropping out of grad school because something like a fifth of people actually return to the departments, either because they don't want to return or because the return process involves doing things like demonstrating that whatever reason you left for is has been resolved completely in these very kind of like intrusive and often difficult to accomplish ways. Okay. Uh, I was just curious. So. If you don't have any other incidents that you want to bring up, we can move on to the next question. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I like to ask people if you feel like you belong. And that means, do you feel like you personally identify as a physicist and do you feel like you are recognized as such in the community? Yeah, I do. I feel like uh, I both feel like a physicist. I don't know, like I like thinking about physics, and uh, I definitely fit the stereotype in terms of my self identity for the most part. So I rarely run into problems where people are surprised to hear I'm a physicist. I suppose the the biggest problems is I'll be out somewhere and someone will be like, "You're a physicist, but you're so." fun to hang out with. <laughs> so perhaps not a, not a bad mistake in that, that regard. And uh, what about in the physics community itself? What is that like? Um, the sense of belonging? Yeah, I don't know. It's very intangible. I'm trying to like formulate something concrete, right? But like, I guess, I just, it's, it seems easy to start talking to somebody else in physics and like have an engaging conversation not even just specifically about physics right but um, 
Like there's a lot of com a common reference points. Especially because I always feel like physics is a very narrow discipline. Um, like unlike biology, where like you don't like so someone working on something that's not what you work on. Maybe you have no common points of reference. Like we've all taken the same basic course load, right? We're all using the same basic mathematical tools. So it, you can talk to someone and like become interested what they're doing very quickly. And uh, I don't know. Uh, but you feel like you do feel like you belong in the community. Yeah. Because you have mentioned that you moved from the hard condensed matter. Ooh. Has that has that subfield distinction affected you in any way? I don't think so. I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't think so. Cool. I guess like I. I definitely identify with my subfield too. Uh, a little like squishier and more quirky than hard condensed matter, which seems to kind of be, all be asking the same questions right now. But, um, yeah, I, I guess when I see certain other fields talking about things they seem to care about, I often won't understand the significance, but I, that doesn't, doesn't faze me because that's not my field. Um, but it doesn't ta take long necessarily talking to someone who does that side of thing to like, for them to convince you of some sort of significance, right? Um, those talks that have just a bunch of elements in the title, um, atomic formulas, none of those have any significance to me. And it takes someone being like, oh, this one is interesting because it does the such and such and such. I'm like, oh, I know what those three things are. <laughs> Got it. I see. So you might feel alienated from other subfields because you don't understand the, the research thrust. Yeah. But you do feel like you were able to quickly apprehend why it's uh, important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, talk titles and maybe named effects aren't so helpful. What if someone's like, oh, it, this named effect just means that such and such scatters like this. I'm like, okay, you should, just, you should say that next time. <laughs> Great. So what about when you... Um, I also like to ask people about what they think... What are the characteristics of a great scientist? Yeah. That's an interesting question. I think, I mean, the... the the sort of like the notion of great scientists is sort of weird but if we want to be just like very like genuine about it i would say like someone who like works with other people and can like you know like sh like is really good at sharing their expertise and knowing the people who have the expertise they don't Right? That's sort of like, I feel like the great scientist expertise is having a great Rolodex of like people to ask about specific things, right? So that you can, you know, you, you're hammering on the thing that you're very good at or the su subset of things you're very good at. And like there's a, there's a really subtle ability to, to realize one, like what the problem is in the thing you're trying to do. And then two, like rather than like, I mean, the first step is like what book to find like guidance in and, uh, but, but, but better, right? The person to find guidance in for that problem, right? Because like science is, is inherently collaborative. Uh, like a great scientist doesn't do anything by themselves. Or doesn't do anything by themselves. Yeah, unless they're Newton, <laughs> in which case he just like also goes crazy and is convinced the apocalypse is going to happen in like five years and writes huge tomes on alchemy. So that's never a good place to be. 
and what about the culture and physics in general? Are there what what would you um, what would be a, the characteristics of a healthy physics culture? Yeah, I think I have a lot of thoughts about this. I mean, like, there's this sense that like science today. I mean, I'm, can I go for a little bit? Yeah, go for it. There's this, there's this sense so that there's this sense that like science today. I mean, there's, it's literally true that science today is mostly a result of, of military spending, right? Like, we pour lots of money, in the United States at least, into, um, like, the larger military-industrial complex. Some of that appears in things like the NSF and the Department of Defense, which turns all the kind of grants. Um, but, like, for the most part, basic research today is a result of, like, just government subsidies via the military, which, like, makes priorities kind of warped. Even if you can't see it on the ground in your specific discipline, like, it warps priorities in a, in a very strange way. And I think, like, in general, in science, like, rethinking how funding works and, re like, democratizing how things like publishing and... Uh, and like larger research functions are essential like steps that like cultural change has to come alongside of, but like both are essential. You're never going to have like a really good physics culture when where the military industrial complexes like R and D department. And in terms of like what a, a culture that would go along with that looks like, like when we start asking questions about how to democratize science and get like and get not only like the people who do science, but like society at large involved in in deciding what sort of questions and things to prioritize, right? What are the important things to ask and study? Um, I like like you inevitably find that like the makeup and and like interpersonal facts of physics will need to change too. Like you can't have like a predominantly white male discipline uh, be very good at at taking like broader ideas and priorities and incorporating them um, but yeah I think just just in terms of specific culture things like more like personal personable more like community based like the idea that meritocracy is at all a meaningful uh, idea like like has any kind of sort of significance in science being done um, and like progress being made needs to be completely like abolished right we need uh, senses in departments and among like research groups that that it's it's like these connections, right? It's, 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 it's connecting people who have different uh, knowledge and skills and abilities uh, that does anything. And that like trying to do things like hiring and admissions or whatever based on like these very narrow individual uh, like accomplishments, it's not good. And we start like expanding that, that idea, right? Like, you know, hiring in apartments uh, instead of saying, like, oh, how can we be the best person? You have to ask the question, like, how do we get the best, like, community? How do we get the best group of people to do things and do things together? And when you start asking those kind of questions, like, things like explicitly hiring people based on their identities becomes, like, extremely, like, it immediately comes to the front of your mind. You say, well, like, a good community is diverse, right? 
uh, a good community has people who ask all kinds of like questions from all kinds of different backgrounds because like very homogenous communities are are boring uh, and uncreative and and unjust, right? So yeah, making a more community focused sort of way of doing science and way of organizing departments is definitely key. And like once once you start do, making the choices based on those sort of ideas, um, and not based on like this kind of fetization of the individual, uh, I think you'll start to see some of the more like surface level uh, problems that exist, right? Like you know, like literally, women or people of color at a conference being like mistaken as not physicists, right? That's like. That is very bad, but it comes out of a power imbalance, right? And you like you really have to address these power imbalances. And asking the questions of what we want from departments in science, I think, is is sort of the key first steps to getting that to happen. Do you know of any departments that hire in this way, in terms of what type of community are we trying to build versus we want the person who has achieved this number of papers and I don't specifically, but I mean, like, I think there are there are degrees, right? There's no one who's like doing the beautiful utopian vision now. Um, but for instance, the math department, the math department, in my institution has uh, just through whatever means somehow uh, set up their admissions so that they consistently have an equal number of women and men which given the statistics in math, which are much worse than physics in this regard, is remarkable and shows it can be possible. You just have to make these decisions. You have to say, look, we're going to implement gender justice in our department. And it can happen. Like our math department is proof of that. Now clearly it doesn't solve everything because you know the larger power structures are in place, the professorship isn't quite as good. Um, and so like you know, these cultural things still percolate in, but like these are the types of choices we have to start making if we want anything to change. Cool. Yeah, I think sometimes the solutions can be much easier than people in power make them seem. And it's like, no, you can, you can actually literally just do this. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And it might be easier at a private institution than a public one. Um, but I'm actually not sure what the laws say there. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, but it also really takes that sort of shift in, in priorities, right? Like, yeah. if you believe that like skilled individuals make great physics or math or whatever, then like based on like that perhaps very like genuinely held belief, you will oppose something like like very fair and just admissions because like that belief is incompatible with attempting to build apartments as a community, right? Like, you, if you believe that, then you also believe that, like, attempting to admit a cohort that has these properties is antithetical to, like, getting the best cohort. So we really have to push on this, like, what having the best community or the best science means, right? Yeah. You're you basically get... pointing to the um, diversity versus meritocracy or merit-based admissions there's always, that's always a discussion that happens in departments about admissions or any kind of decisions like this. Um, and you basically are saying that it requires people to change their 
perspective or change their priorities. Yeah, because like we don't we don't know what makes good science happen. Honestly, we have no like, we have no idea. We have some like you know if we, if we talk about it in like a, a, a physics-y way, right? We have some uh, some some cost functions that we try to optimize that we're pretty sure like have some correlation, right? But we have no idea like what we're, what what to optimize. We really don't. So as long as we're like you know doing some amount of optimization in terms of like oh you've demonstrated you have knowledge about these specific things that physicists generally have knowledge about, we might as well like play with the other knobs available, right? And if some of those knobs mean more just practices, like absolutely we should be doing that. And like I suspect personally that those practices also correlate with better science. <laughs> right, that we're actually holding ourselves back by not playing with these opportunities, taking these opportunities. Interesting. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate this discussion. Um, yeah. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach out about the project, please send an email to voicesinphysicspodcast at gmail.com.